Welcome to Dr. Eric's Relentless Vitality Podcast. Our focus is on optimizing physical and mental vitality, maximizing performance, and extending lifespan. Dr. Eric is a licensed physician with a wealth of expertise in age management and preventive medicine, whose goal is enabling his patients to stay young, feel their best, and enjoy a higher quality of life. Mike, it's Eric Fade. How are you? Hey, how are you? I'm doing well, doing well. I just tried. I tried. I was a few minutes early, so that's my fault. No worries. I was just finishing up another <laughs> call, but uh, I am now free and ready to chat. Excellent. How's your week going so far? Oh, pretty good. I can't complain. How's yours? Good, good. Uh, busy. Getting ready to... Uh, it's a typical week for me, but uh, gearing up, I'm actually... Uh, two days from today, I'm going to be heading out of town for a week, going to a conference, a medical conference, and I bring my two sons with me. It's a wilderness medicine conference, and we get to ski and do some wilderness medicine. It's a good time. It's a little boys' trip. Whoa, that's that sounds fun. Yeah, yeah. Where you... is that? Where is that about? Yeah, Big Sky, Montana. I don't know if you're familiar. Oh wow, that's a famous place. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Are you a skier? Uh, you know, so I, I uh, when I was uh, living in Russia, my first seven years of life, for the first couple of years there I we did cross-country skiing because that's like a Russian national sport right, um, right. and uh, so I own skis and I skied hypothetically I guess uh, but uh, ever since we came to the United States uh, skiing is not anything we did so and now currently I'll, I'll almost certainly never ski because the risk to reward ratio does not interest me whatsoever. <laughs> yeah I understand that yeah especially it's definitely we, a high risk sport <laughs> it, it definitely can be I, I love cross-country skiing that's how I started it's obviously it's a great workout but um yeah, I agree. I mean, I've seen a lot of people get injured downhill skiing, unfortunately. And um, yeah, I was out uh, a few weeks ago and I just, I didn't really do anything, but my knee was really inflamed and it was kind of, kind of stiff and sore. I thought, oh crap, I'm going to Big Sky in a couple of weeks. And it's just, like you said, it's just one of those things you just have to be extra careful because it is a high risk sport. So 100%. Uh, well, hey, I appreciate your time. I've been looking forward to having you on the call. Um, I already recorded a little, uh, little, little take about you, but I'll let you you talk about yourself. But as for myself, uh, I am here in Ohio. I forget where you're at exactly. With where's Philadelphia? You? Yeah, that's right, Philly. Okay, yeah, because you had uh, did some uh, teaching and things at Temple, correct? Mm-hmm. That's correct. Yes. Perfect. Um, 
So I'm in here in Ohio, Columbus, and uh, we're uh, funny. We're talking to you. We're we're gearing up, of course, for the big Arnold in a, what next week, I think. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, do you guys do you ever come out to that? By the way. Yeah, almost every year I'll be out there this year too. Awesome, awesome. Do you, are you going to be there uh, just uh, pretty much the whole time, or just different venues, or do you have a, a uh, schedule? We yeah, no schedule. So my friend Jared is competing in the bodybuilding. And so we're going mostly to support him, but also my parents are going to be coming down. So I'm going to show them around the Arnold. I think awesome. Be- yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. Well, uh, I'll have to get your, uh, your contact in for, from me that way. If we, uh, if we get a chance, I can see if you're around. I think I'm going to be there either Saturday or Sunday. I'm not sure which day yet. We're, um, going to meet me, a friend of mine are going and we're going to meet up with, uh, uh, one of the big name guys there who he's been fostering a relationship with, going to talk to him a little bit. So cool. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I'm here in Columbus, Ohio. I'm a physician, and I have a basically a um, a practice. I've done a bunch of different things. I used to be in emergency medicine, but now I'm more in the uh, I, I don't really uh, more of the uh, performance enhancement, lifestyle, anti aging, age management sl- <laughs> bucket. I guess you know, I started okay. off I started off doing like interventional endocrinology, which is basically uh, getting into hormone replacement therapy, peptide therapies, uh, preventive therapy, like with stem cell treatments and things like that, and of course, that lends itself to um, the lifestyle medicine, preventive healthcare, uh, et cetera. So, kind of getting into the the, war, the world of uh, you know fitness, performance, nutrition, uh, op- optimization, health optimization uh, space, basically. And it's a broad bucket, but you know, I get patients that come to see me are just you know pre diabetic, just don't know where to start, all the way up to guys that are already working out and they're already pretty big. They just want to take their their performance to the next level. So, kind of across the spectrum, health as well as performance. So. Um, uh, so that's kind of what I do. So that's why with my podcast, I try to find the, the top guys and gals in the field who, uh, whether it's sports, fitness, performance, uh, hormones, medicine, uh, little, uh, kind of a broad swath of things. So um, that's why I was uh, excited to get you on. I heard you on a podcast. Gosh, it's, I don't even remember which one. Now I listened to a bunch of different ones. Uh, it was either Sigma Nutrition or might have been um, the Iraqi uh, Nutrition, the gentleman over there in Norway. Um, but uh, he had some had some great podcasts, so I thought, man, I gotta I gotta get a hold of this guy. <laughs> cool, thanks, man. Well, I'm excited to start. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, if I can uh, do anything to help and uh, promote you and your company to my listeners, that'd be fantastic. And I'll get to some links uh, at the end. But uh, I did a quick intro. But any, if you want to give a quick uh, 10, 30 second uh, pitch about, I guess, tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, where you're from and what you're doing now. Yeah. Um, so I am. Uh, living in Philadelphia, I used to be a professor of sports science at Temple University, but then uh, a company that my co-founder and I started called Renaissance Periodization um, got quite a bit bigger, so I switched to doing that full time. So I write books, I design digital products, and I sort of communicate science to the general public uh, about training and diet and things like that. And I go around the world giving talks about stuff like that as well. And, um, that's, that's what I do. And I myself, um, have a PhD in sport physiology and I'm a competitive, uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu grappler and bodybuilder. Yeah, that's awesome. How, how long have you been doing the jiu-jitsu for? Uh, five and a half years now, I guess. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, that's interesting. That's uh, have you have you done uh, other martial arts as well? Was it mostly jujitsu you've been latched onto, or? So I, I wrestled in high school. I don't know if that's a martial art, but it's definitely <laughs> a combat sport. It so. is. It is. I I, uh, I wrestled in high school as well. I uh, didn't do it in college, but I've been uh, done a different a couple different types of martial arts through the years. It's always been an interest. I've done some. 
uh, some jujitsu, ninjitsu type stuff. And, uh, I've been doing Krav Maga for a couple of years now and, um, looking at trying something else here soon too. It's, it's, uh, cool. it's, it's good to keep the, uh, that mind motor, uh, muscle connection, uh, mixed up a little bit, try some different things, you know, for sure. <laughs> so are you doing any, uh, any high level competitions coming up with that or? Uh, you know what? So I'm uh, looking to compete in bodybuilding this fall, okay. which means I'm just training jujitsu and not competing in it so that I can minimize my risk of injury. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I, one of the things I guess, I mean, I could talk to you about a mil- for, for a long, long time, uh, but I guess we'll just hone in on a couple different things and uh, see where it goes. Um, uh, by the way, I love your, I uh, checked out your site as well. You guys have a very nice, clean site, very easy to navigate. Uh, some good information on there from what I can see. Oh, I, thanks. Our site designer would love to hear you say that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like the, uh, the call to action, you know, everything is a go, you know, and he, he kind of pushes you to, to click on it and, and check it out a little bit. So uh, it looks, it looks very nice. Um, so, uh, I've listened to a lot of older podcasts as well as some newer ones. And I think obviously there's been a lot of, uh, talk and back and forth through the years, of course, on uh, things that are, are always changing and some things staying the same, but obviously yeah, a lot of, you know, a lot of your guys and a lot of my, my people are always interested in, and, uh, obviously, you know, muscle growth, hypertrophy, uh, we always talk about the, the variance between intensity, volume, uh, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I know for a while there, there was some debate about, you know, what are the, uh, you know, what's the, what's the best volume, what's the, what's the best scheme, you know, in terms of sets per week, et cetera. There was a little back and forth there for a while, but I, I think it's, it sounds like it's, it's, it's got a little more, more flat, but for some of my listeners who've never heard you talk about that before, and if you don't want to beat a, beat a dead horse, just cut it short. But if you don't mind, just give me your summary. What's your take on the current literature in that regard? Sure. So I think, you know, for a while it was, um, for a while, people didn't know what was more important about putting on muscle. Was it you know, how much weight you lifted or was it how many sets you did? Um, right. Because, you know, sort of those two come at the expense of one another. You can only accumulate so much fatigue. So if you put a lot of weight on the bar versus if you don't put a lot of weight on the bar, you could maybe do more reps and more sets if you put less. Right. And another way to phrase that is as far as progression, like week to week, month to month, are you trying to get as strong as possible? to put on size or are you trying to get as um, big as possible and, and is getting as strong as possible the same thing as big as possible? Maybe is there another way to progress? Maybe adding reps or adding sets might be a better way to get bigger. And so for a long time, that was just not clear from the literature. And what you did know colloquially sort of um, was that bo- bodybuilders did a whole lot more volume than powerlifters did. And now they weren't usually as strong. Um, right. but like a bodybuilder could do 300 pounds for a bunch of sets of 15, whereas a powerlifter could do 400 pounds for just a couple sets of, you know, eight. And while what the powerlifter was doing was sort of more impressive as far as weight lifted, um, it was not as big as the bodybuilder and the bodybuilder usually was just better at doing more volume and, and more repetitions, although not necessarily more reps per set, but just more reps overall through a workout. So we had that kind of as a suspicion. So anybody who tried to say, you know, getting big is all about getting stronger, you could always point out to them that, you know, powerlifters and, and weightlifters are a real good example of very, very strong, but it seems like they just don't do enough in the gym maybe to get as big as they could. So there was some kind of suspicion that doing a lot of work was a good way to get big and maybe getting strong was a part of that, but maybe not the only part or the most central part. And then, Later on, you know, over the last five years, especially 10 years, really, we got a whole lot more evidence from the literature, uh, both mechanistic evidence and 
direct evidence of comparing, comparing different kinds of programs. And we're starting to figure out pretty solidly that uh, volume is more important to muscle growth than intensity. Uh, to put it more specifically, it seems like doing sets of anything between five reps per set all the way up to 30 reps per set, so long as you're getting pretty close to failure within three or four reps to failure on most of those working sets, uh, it results in really kind of similar hypertrophy all across the board. And there may actually be an advantage to training a variety of rep ranges within that big range, but it's a very hard case to make that you know, someone who does lots of sets of 15 is going to be smaller than someone who does lots of sets of five because that sets of five person is going to be able to lift more weight. Right. Um, so when you equate number of hard working sets, it looks like it's really kind of similar from the five rep to 30 rep range. But the number of hard working sets seems to be something that uh, can't be equated to produce the same muscle growth. So, for example, uh, if you say, okay, someone's doing 20 sets per week and someone else is doing five sets per week. Uh, what are the chances that how heavy do we have to make the bar for that five set per week person for them to get equivalent growth to that 20 set per week person? Mm-hmm. It just seems like the best answer to that is with, that's really just not possible. Like there's just no replacing work, work yeah. right? So yep. uh, and, and work technically is is called volume in in uh, sports science. So basically, the number of hard sets. What is a hard set? Anything between uh, sets of five or sets of thirty, and probably a good deal of that range is good to do throughout the year. Um, but it's how many sets you do per week, and, and to some extent per session, that really starts to determine the most of how much muscle you grow. So if you show me a guy that's doing only sets of 20 reps, but he does 20 sets a week, show me his identical twin that does only five sets per week, but he's doing sets of five real heavy each time, almost always the guy who's doing 20 sets is going to be bigger. So we're kind of starting to understand that at least for intermediate lifters, people have been lifting, you know, three years to maybe to seven or to 10 years, somewhere between uh, you know, just under 10 and just over 20 sets per week per body part with a few caveats is like a good range. I pray like, well, you know, is 15 worse than 20 or is 15 better than 10? I think individual differences start to really play a role there. How you do your peer? But if someone's like, hey, I've got this program that's three sets a week or five sets a week, is it going to compare to a 15 set per week program? As far as muscle growth, probably not. And And just the lastly, you know, that's a, a sort of probably a normal distribution of volumes. And there's a lot of people on the tail ends uh, outside of those ranges. So there's actually quite a few people, and this is leaving beginners aside because they need lower volumes anyway, even intermediates, there's a lot of people that will benefit from five sets a week more than they'll benefit from 10 or greater. And concomitantly, there's a lot of people that will benefit from 30, 35, 40 sets a week. Uh, you know, incrementally rarer uh, sure. than people than than they would from twenty sets or fifteen sets a week. So, all taking all this data together, what what I managed to do with my colleagues, especially Dr. James Hoffman, is to derive these theoretical what we call volume landmarks, and they basically sort of describe 
how to individualize volume for yourself so that you know you're training in the right number of sets. Mm -hmm. And I can get into that further if you'd like. Yeah, that'd be great because that was one of my follow-up questions too is, you know, how do you individual? Obviously, it's it, as you said, it's individual. And I think you mentioned mm -hmm. uh, earlier um, that, yes, uh, the, rep, the, the working sets is a concept that I, that I thought was very fitting as well because, you know, obviously, and this, this is probably a separate topic, but, you know, a lot of people are talking about, oh, yeah, you can still get hypertrophy if you're doing, you know, sets of, you know, 20 reps, 30 reps and things and, you know, 30 to 40% of your, of your max. But how many of those sets are you, are you doing a week? How much volume? And then how much, sure. uh, how much does that play into it too? So, yeah. Uh, For sure. So the volume landmarks are sort of theoretical necessities. Like if basic logic makes sense and if anything remotely that we understand about the body is true, they have to be true. And because they're so reliable, theoretically, we can measure them and derive them and use them to guide our training. So the first pertinent volume landmark is what we call minimum effective volume. Mm -hmm. can be applied to anything you do, certainly anything in the gym. But it's easily applied to hypertrophy by saying the minimum effective volume is the minimum number of sets per week that you can reliably do and see the tiniest bit of growth. Put another way. If you do anything less than that, you just won't be able to see muscle growth. Like for example, and this works really well on individuals that have trained already, you know, if I take a Mr. Olympia bodybuilder who's used to doing 15 to 20 working sets per week to grow, and I put him on a program that has him do three sets per week, he's actually going to lose muscle for months and months and months until he stabilizes at a low level of muscularity that can be maintained only at three sets per week. And if he drops to below that muscularity, he'll grow again from three sets a week, but he'd have to lose like half his muscle to get there. Right. So when, when people hear minimum effective volume, there's sometimes they say, well, you mean I have to do this or, or more, or I won't grow. And that's exactly correct. Like you would think, Mr. Olympia's minimum effective volume, probably not zero, you know, right. it's probably not right. one set a week. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, so minimum effective volume is a very important volume landmark. It's the first one we talk about. And that's kind of where you start all of your programs is minimum effective volume. So let's say you've – and how do you know that that's – what's your minimum effective volume? Well, there's two ways. Uh, one is more reliable than the other, but the more reliable one takes a lot more time to figure out. Eventually, you'll learn both. The most straightforward way is to test multiple programs on yourself and see which ones cause growth and which ones don't. <laughs> right, right. So for example, you could say, okay, I think my minimum effective volume is somewhere between five and 10 sets per week. So you do a five set program for a month or two. You test your rep maxes afterwards to see if you've gotten stronger or do you look at your physique visually or do tape measures or to get a DEXA scan. And all of those things come back and it's like, mm, nah, you gained muscle within a margin of error. And you're like, great, okay, so right. five's not enough. <laughs> then you can try seven uh, for the next couple of months and it's you still nothing happens and then you try 10 and you get your first inklings of oh wow okay i got progress right so then you know your minimum effective volume is roughly around 10 cents per week um but to shortcut that process it'll eventually happen anyway because eventually you train enough you write enough stuff down you you realize where you get the gains and where you don't but a sort of real shortcut to that is to uh, actually measure perceptual variables in training itself in a couple of days after to see how much volume it takes to check the boxes, so to speak, to not guarantee, but to point the likely direction, okay, now you have enough volume to grow. And here's what I mean by this. There's primarily three of these things that we usually look at. One is effort perception. It's just, uh, do you think that the workout you did, let's say for chest, is like actually a workout? So for example, if if you can do a chest workout with your eyes closed, you barely have to try at all. There's no 
you're not burdened by the volume at all. Like it's a set. And like, look, if, if it's your first day in the gym, a set of chest flies is like, oh man, woo, I felt that. Like <laughs> right. after 10 years in the gym, who the hell says that about a set? You're like, okay, I'm not even warmed up yet. I'll put right. it to you that way. Right? right. So is there a perception of at least decent effort? It doesn't have to be overwhelming. It's just like, all right, I feel like I worked out. And that's part one. Part two is the perception of the muscle pump. Does something cause a pump? So, you know, if you do like one set of leg presses, you might have like no pump or barely any pump, but two, three, four sets later, you're like, all right, I got a pump here. So because the muscle pump is so closely related to hypertrophy at a variety of mechanistic levels, we can say, okay, if you're getting zero pump, it's possible that you're growing muscle. It's just not as likely as if you're getting a pump. So the next check mark there is, okay, we're perceiving a work effort that's decent. We're getting some kind of pump. It doesn't have to be incredible. Just it's got to be there. Right. And then lastly is soreness. Soreness can be delayed onset soreness or it can be immediate onset soreness. And the soreness we're looking for, either the muscle feels like tighter and weaker later in the day after you trained it, but then the next day it's fine at the very least. Or uh, there's delayed onset soreness where like the next day you're actually a little bit more sore and you're like, ooh, okay, I see you hamstrings. I know you're there, right? <laughs> so if you, so, so those are the three checklist items, effort perception, your pump, and your soreness. If you check the minimum on each one of like detected, detected, detected on all three, that's probably close to where your minimum effective volume is, right? Imagine a, a workout that you did where someone's like, all right, did you feel like it was a workout? You're like, yep. Did you get a pump? You're like, yep, got a little bit of a pump. Did you get sore? Mm, I got a little sore. A little like, bit, yeah. That's probably going to cause muscle growth, right? right. It, 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 maybe that's hard to believe. So let's look at the corollary of that. So let's look at the opposite. Let's say you did a workout and someone's like, did that feel like a workout? You're like, nope, felt like a warm-up. Like, okay, did you get a pump? You're like, I literally couldn't have told you my muscles did anything with pre and post. And <laughs> okay, did you get sore? Like, nothing happened. Like, are we confident that that's causing any hypertrophy? Because if we are, we just discovered the golden fleece of muscle growth, right? effortless muscle growth. Exactly. I would just do that forever. Why get a pump and inconvenience myself? And soreness, heck, trying. Man, if I can feel like I didn't do anything and still grow, I mean, geez, you know, there it is. Yep. So basically, if you use that triple checklist to just hit the minimums, you know that's sort of where your minimum effective volume is at. And then later, as you progress through your multiple programs, month after month after month, you sort of start to kind of shit test that and say, okay, well, I thought this was my minimum effective volume, but when I just kept my volume super low, I actually didn't get any growth, so it looks like I have to do a bit more. Or you're like, wow, I'm actually growing really fast, so I could probably get away with less, so on and so forth. So that's minimum effective volume. The next volume landmark is maximum recoverable volume. That's at the opposite end of the spectrum, where it's the most number of sets you can do per week. Uh, there's a variety of unit timescales to display this at, but uh, the week is the easiest. Let me see, what's the highest number of sets I can uh, do per week and still recover to present another overload next time? So, for example, if you did like you know, uh, 20 sets of quads this week. And someone's like, all right, can you put five more pounds on the bar next week to all these lifts and still get the same reps? You're like, are you kidding me? I'm going to need a wheelchair after this week. <laughs> like that's never going to happen. I just can't recover that from that much volume in a week. So that would be your maximum recoverable volume. And as you can tell, it's very easy to test because you'll know when you have exceeded it because your performance will fall. Sure. And it's maybe like you had a bad week or whatever, but you'll see one of these things like, if your maximum recovery volume for your quads is really about 20 sets per week, every time you take your volume to 20 sets and over, you experience a drop in performance. Like sometimes it's at 18 sets, sometimes it's 22 sets, but something around 20, there's something around 20 that's happening that you're like, okay, clearly my body is not able to deal with this 20 sets per week kind of stuff. Right. So 
once you find your maximum recover volume, you have actually identified the entire spectrum of volume where you grow. You know, let's say it's 10 and 20, 10 for your minimum effective volume, 20 for your maximum recoverable. You know that anywhere in that volume, you grow muscle. Right. Which if we want to take the next step and say, okay, when we design programs, we're going to start the first week at roughly our minimum effective volume, 10-ish, 12-ish sets. And then every week we're going to add a couple of sets as our bodies adapt and we're not super sore or fatigued. And over the weeks, we're going to go all the way up to 18 to 20. Then we're going to get way too fatigued. We're not going to be able to keep that up. We're going to have to take a deload week, an easy week to recover. And then we maybe change some exercises, change some rep ranges. Maybe we just increase the weights on everything and we go through another one of those what are called accumulation cycles or accumulation phases and voila there's your hypertrophy training yep perfect i think you're looking at my notes because every point you touched on is that those are all follow-up questions i had for you so. well i must have studied really hard for this, <laughs> this podcast <laughs> yeah that was actually going to touch on that next about you know the cycles as you know obviously they refer to as mesocycles etc in terms of accumulation phase the deload phase and obviously i'm sure there's a ton of individual vari- variability i mean i've noticed that myself but um you know, training hard, as you said, progressing for, you know, I guess probably some, some advanced lifters can do it for months. Others need maybe do it for four or six weeks and then take a deload. Have you noticed a, a kind of a trend based on a training experience there in terms of how long do you, you do that accumulation phase and then deload? Yeah, absolutely. So the trend is usually, uh, in the opposite direction where beginners can survive longer accumulation phases before needing a deload than the advanced. Why? Sure. The advanced are able to push themselves harder. The advanced don't make gains as fast, so they can't uh, continue to up the ante and still recover. And also the advanced are carrying so much muscle mass and pushing themselves so close to their limits that fatigue accumulates incredibly rapidly. Let me put it to you this way. When a 100-pound soccer mom of three in her second month of training deadlifts 70 pounds for a set of 10 – that is a certain amount of physiological damage and destruction that occurs to the body. It takes a certain amount of time to heal. It's just not that much time because it's just 70 pounds for a set of 10. Right. When World's Strongest Man competitor Brian Shaw does 700 for 10 and then deadlift, yeah. it doesn't matter how big he is. That causes serious havoc. I mean, that is a load that would actually kill the woman if she tried it, literally. <laughs> right, right. Um, but um, for him... It's going to be in, in a, a huge burden to his physiology to recover. So if we're talking about number of sets, like his sets are heavier, right? So she may be able to recover from way more sets than he does. And put it another way, if she starts at her minimum effective volume, just like he does, the fatigue for him skyrockets way more quickly than it does for her because she's adapting at such a fast rate and it's such a small amount of fatigue anyway. You can keep going. I'll put you uh, in another way. If you do like, uh, let's say you do like a, like a wilderness survival camp or wilderness survival course, right, to bring it back to one of your, I suppose, sort of professional slash hobbies. If you do a course where you're out in the wilderness putting splints on people and learning how to filter water and stuff for two hours a day um, and then the rest is recreation, you could go to Colorado and take a four-week course like that, no problem, and be like, this is love it. I, I can just keep doing this. You know, right. like at some point, a week, you know, four weeks in, you'd be like, I kind of miss my home and I wonder what my dogs are doing. I know that we, I know we paid someone to look at them, but I miss them. You, know, you <laughs> might, not, might not want to be there anymore. Right? So, but, but on the other hand, uh, you know, you might get calluses on your fingers from putting on splints after a couple of weeks. 
But if, if, if there was the same order in a survival course, but it was 12 hours a day, do you really think you'd enjoy being there for a month? Yeah, no, Probably big difference. not. <laughs> the fatigue accumulates to the point where like, okay, you're only getting eight, uh, six hours of sleep a night now. And it's grinding and grinding and grinding. So when you're an advanced athlete, there's just more burden. And that's why advanced athletes sometimes run what's called a three-to-one accumulation to deload paradigm, where they increase the volumes and intensities for three weeks, and then they need another week. Beginners oftentimes can run, gee, six-to-one, eight-to-one is not uncommon in real beginners, uh, because they just can't accumulate that much fatigue. They can't push themselves as hard. And interestingly enough, from a physiological perspective, if you look at the uh, blood, uh, the circulatory system capacity and size and the gastrointestinal system capacity and size relative to the size of the musculature, uh, the more advanced athletes take a huge hit in that department. Hmm. Let's put uh, bodybuilders on blast. Um, Mr. Olympia, Sean Roden, his gastrointestinal system is small. Why? Because he has like 27-inch waist, right? But he has like 38-inch quads. When he does a huge leg workout, how the hell is his GI system supposed to really process nutrients fast enough to recover him at a rapid pace from that much muscle damage. What about a circulatory system? I mean, circulatory system is advanced, but it's nothing crazy. Whereas let's say you have someone do a leg workout and they weigh a hundred pounds. It's their first leg workout ever. I mean, their leg muscles are smaller than your biceps and they're lifting such small weights. They have a normal human gastrointestinal system and circulatory system and all the other recovery systems. Gee, you know, that's a joke to those systems to within a day or two recover that muscle completely where Sean Roden might take a week. So what if they do the same workout, he can only keep that up for so long, whereas they can keep it up for, you know, not indefinitely, but definitely way longer. Does that make sense to some extent? Oh yeah. It makes total sense. And that's a great point about the circulatory, the GI, et cetera. Those are some things that a lot of people just kind of forget about, you know, and just don't think about those things. But yeah, they're just not as trainable, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like I, I I wish, I wish I could, you know, double my fucking cardio or I'm sorry, am I allowed to swear in here? Oh Oh, yeah, go ahead. (laughs) Bad habit. I, I, I wish I could just double my cardiovascular capacity, so on and so forth. But the thing is precisely the athletes that can do that are endurance athletes. They have the concomitantly small musculature, which is, is designed to be recovered by that. So it's interesting. Endurance athletes are actually the ones that recover the fastest, right? Because they have small cross section area of muscles and at the same time they have really advanced circulatory systems and respiratory systems and so on and so forth uh, they can i don't know if you ever trained an advanced uh, athlete in the gym advanced um endurance athlete they can take 10 second breaks between sets of 10 in the squat maximum sets of 10 in the squat and they're fine you're wow. like, what on like, earth is going on i right. need an hour growing right. up or whatever <laughs> so so it's one of those things where beginners actually can accumulate for longer mm-hmm. but i will say this it all comes back down to this beginner intermediate whatever start at your minimum effective volume as you notice that you're able to recover and not as sore as, as you had been, add a set here and there to an exercise here and there, add some weight to the bar. The, the details of that we can uh, discuss or just leave for another time altogether. The details are not as important as you're making baby step additions to the number of sets, perhaps the number of reps, uh, and definitely the amount of weight on the bar. As you make those baby step additions, your fatigue will accumulate until you're not able to make them. That is sort of a form of auto-discovery of how long those phases need to be. So if someone says, hey, listen, I don't know how long to accumulate for and how long to, you know, when to take my deload, what I would say is start at your minimum effective volume, slowly scoot up as your body adapts, and your body will tell you when you're no longer able to progress. It's that simple. Yeah, exactly. A little auto-regulation. Yep. So is, is there much, have you seen much difference um, between men and women on similar pro- on progressions and, and cycles? Absolutely. Men are generally 
poorer at recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, they cannot handle as much volume per session. They need more rest between sets. They need more rest between sessions. And they need uh, they cannot handle as long a weekly accumulations as females can. Females can accumulate for longer. They can do longer uh, workouts. They can do more volume per workout. They can do less rest between sets. Um, relatively speaking, females recover way better than males do. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I agree with that um, for, completely. Um, okay. No, no, this is a, go ahead. Sorry, it's it's something you notice when you train with with females. You know, like if you write, wrote a training program for a female, you're like, oh, this is gonna mess her up. She does your super crazy leg program, and she's like, ooh, that was tough. And you're like, mm, you're not throwing up. And they're like, no. <laughs> Two days later, their soreness heals, and you're like, oh, you weren't supposed to heal for like another four days. And they're like, I'm fine. And you're like, like let's do it what? again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then you auto regulate. You finally sort of, you know, as you should have been from the beginning, uh, sort of doping out their training volume and intensity as they recover. And you notice, like, wow, like, so, so basically the volume landmarks of 10 to 20 sets per week. I, I should caveat that. That's for males. Mm-hmm. For females, gee, it's probably more like 10 to 30. Yeah. And a lot of females could do 40, 50 sets per week under certain circumstances and sure. be just fine. And anything less for them might not be the optimal. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, that's amazing stuff for sure. Um, Excellent. What do you, I'd love to, um, yeah, talk a little bit too, before I forget about, I guess, uh, touch on the nutrition side as well, but in terms of, uh, what, uh, like for, especially for me and, and probably some of my demographics are a bit different, but obviously one of the big, big thing, of course, for women, unless they're athletes, of course, is of course, you know, fat loss, you know, uh, trimming down and, sure. and putting on a little bit of muscle, but what have you found, I guess, some, uh, some good, some good key points or, or things you want you like to focus on, whether it be uh, nutrition or training or both or whichever, whichever you want to touch on. So the fat loss thing, as far as training, the training is not super important for fat loss as much as nutrition is, but what's good to keep in mind for training and, and fat loss is people want fat loss. They don't normally just want weight loss. Um, yep. you know, forgive the, forgive the comparison, but, um, do you know who Willem Dafoe is by any chance? Yes. Yep. You know, Skeletor looking guy. Correct. Um, you know, <laughs> most people don't want to end the diet and people be like, Oh, you know, you're starting to look a lot like Willem Dafoe. Like, wait a minute. Am I dying? Yeah. Right. Look and like that. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. If you lose, you know, fat and muscle, just lose weight. You get the Kate Moss, Willem Dafoe thing. Like you come to work and people ask if you're okay at home and if you're sick, uh, they don't ask like, hey, where can I get your workout that you're doing? (laughs) So you definitely want to resistance train more often than not when you're losing weight. So that prevents the muscle loss from occurring. You keep your muscle, perhaps gain some, and then you're going to lose pure body fat, which is a real good look. It leaves you curvy, shape, uh, you know, shapely, and uh, way healthier and more capable. You know, you know, people lose weight and they're like, oh, I, I'm, you know, people will say like, I've gotten so weak since I lost weight. But people in fitness don't say that. They get, they lose weight and they're like, I feel so free and so strong. Um, so definitely resistance training is a good thing. And as far as diet, you know, it's kind of a a ranked priority scale, kind of like how we describe it at, uh, Renaissance periodization, our company, you know, calories are number one. It doesn't mean you have to count them, but in some kind of capacity, losing weight and losing fat is about eating less food, maybe not every day, but on average for the week, eating less. One of the best ways to do that, if you're not super familiar with nutrition, isn't actually counting calories and eating the same stuff you were, just less of it, um, it's easy to get hungry like that. You start eat, eating healthier foods, less processed foods, right? specifically more vegetables, fruits, whole grains, 
uh, and lean meats kind of in that order of importance. And when you start to do that, you basically notice that you're eating what seems like a lot of food. Because of that, you're not hungry, but you're losing pounds and pounds and pounds of weight because you're, the food is not very calorie dense. Like a lot of the times when I'm in a fat loss phase, and I'm, I mean when now, most of my main meals, I start with a bowl of like broccoli, celery, um, a variety of veggies, carrots. Once I'm done with that bowl, that bowl is like 30 calories. It's right. like almost nothing. And once I'm done with that bowl, I look at the rest of my actual food and I'm like, oh, it's be tough to finish. <laughs> I'm pretty full. Yeah. Where, yeah. Exactly. Whereas if you suck up a cheeseburger real quick, you're like, that was easy. That was like, wow, 690 calories. Like, oh, well, I can have another one of those. Like, yeah, for sure. So yeah. a lot of that is creating the calorie deficit. And we like to recommend for beginners largely creating it by eating more healthy foods. Now, here's the thing. I think more specifically to your audience, uh, folks um, maybe who could use a bit of health improvement, uh, one of these things that's a huge, maybe not a myth, but I think misconception, is the radical life change. I just – I probably couldn't hate that more if I tried. Uh, the new me and turning over a new leaf and it's all healthy now and New Year's resolution 20-whatever because – you know, you'll do the same stupid resolution for 10 years because you'll always suck at it. Um, I really like incremental, habitually based change, which means, look, let's say that you are going to work every day. You're packing. You're not packing a lunch. You're just eating whatever the guys at work eat. And they always order out. And you end up having donuts and pizza and stuff like that. Just keep your breakfast the same as it always was. Keep your dinner, whatever. If you eat ice cream for dinner, keep doing that. Take your lunch and just pack your lunch every day some veggies, a nice whole grain bread sandwich with turkey and cheese, and a couple fruits, and boom, that's it, that's lunch. When you make that change, you're gonna start to lose like a pound a week, like for weeks. Yeah. That's the only change you made. And after a while, that's just kind of what you do. People ask you like, oh man, you make your own lunch, that takes effort. You're like, really, it does? Man, I must have remembered time months ago where it felt like it took effort, but now I just do it with my eyes closed. And then maybe you can start looking at breakfast. You know, I used to have sausage and eggs and bacon and stuff. Maybe it can have some leaner versions of those things. Maybe it can have a, a, a couple more pieces of fruit, maybe some more oatmeal with my breakfast and not a donut. And then all of a sudden you, you start cleaning up your breakfast a little bit and boom, you're losing weight again. And then all of a sudden you clean up your dinners for the most part. Gee, you've lost pounds and pounds and your health is through the roof. And there was never a time where you're like, all right, old me, you're dead. You know, come through a time <laughs> portal, shoot your old self and right. replace it with a healthy person. So which would be sweet, right? At Renaissance, we're always developing time warp machinery because we really are about the future in the literal <laughs> sense. Right. But um, so it's it's one of those things where it's easy to make a quick change and just try to stick to that quick change. I wouldn't just try to bite off everything I could chew right away, um, which is interesting. Um, I don't know if you – have you ever seen the show My 600-Pound Life on uh, Hulu? I've, I've heard of it. I've never watched it, but I'm familiar with it. Well, as a doctor, Oof. you would be fascinated with the show. It's a, basically a show that – takes a year-long journey with people in the uh, in their diets and lifestyle interventions pre-bariatric surgery because a lot of these people are too heavy for bariatric surgery, which usually I think the industry cutoff is like 600 pounds. If you don't get below 600 pounds, they're like, yeah, you need to do something to get below that because we're not going to put you on an operating table with this much you know, <laughs> right. physiologic burden or anatomic burden really at that point. Um, and then so they lose the weight. They get the gastric bypass surgery, and then they lose more weight and or don't, and it sort of chronicles them through there. One of the industry practices for that kind of surgery, because these people are usually in a position where it's like, look, if you don't lose weight like real soon, like you're going to die, 
Um, one of the industry practices I'm sure you're familiar with is the very low calorie diet, a 1200 calorie reference diet is right. used for these individuals. And it's, you know, mostly lean proteins and veggies and that's it. And so people think like, gee, that, that's how you lose weight. Like one day I was eating cheeseburgers, the next day I'm eating fish and, and broccoli, broccoli and that's yeah. it. Yeah. But the thing is, is that like uh, short of a medical emergency, that diet is the least sustainable thing in the world. So if I was working with an individual, let's say was in the 400 pound range, maybe not 600 because I would reference, you know, refer to a physician at that point, but in the 400 pound range, like, look, yeah, gastric bypass may be in your future and it'll definitely make things easier, but let's not start with uh, getting into 1200 calories. It's not sustainable. Like by definition, it's not sustainable. Maybe we just look at your diet, take one meal per day, maybe not even per day on weekdays, and just try to liven that meal up with some veggies, fruits, whole grains, and take the meats that you're eating and make them leaner. Right. And we do that, you're going to start losing weight. And if you're that heavy, you're start losing serious weight. Once we get two or three meals cleaned up, you can have a pizza on a week on a weekend. You can have some ice cream with your family every couple of nights of the week watching TV. You'll still be losing pounds and pounds. And then once you're used to eating healthy, so on and so forth, maybe at some point when you've lost tons of weight and you're already way better shape, you can look towards a more formal style diet, which we also sell a whole bunch of those on RP, but they're just not for everyone. You know what I mean? So I think a lot of it is about beginning slow habit changes, making sure you can stick to it, and then in the end, it's it's a huge transformation that, that takes a while. Yeah, absolutely. No, those are great points, and, they, and I'm I'm big on that too on lifestyle. And, and, and you know, anybody can can do something for a short period of time, but the key is sustainability. You know, just look at the you know all the long term studies. You know, the Biggest Loser study, all those. You know, it's, it's, it's the recidivism oh, rate. You know, sheesh. Oh boy, you know it's it's getting to the point where losing weight is just not super impressive. It used to be, I think in the 80s, 90s, you know, people didn't think that super obese people could lose weight. So that they did made them famous more or less, you know. Right, right. Um, then the research caught up and said, by the way, when the spotlight's not on these people, nine out of 10 of them uh, come back to being obese. And you're like, it, yeah. oh, oh, okay. So the <laughs> real happened? trick, <laughs> right? <laughs> the real trick is keeping the weight off. Right. Now that we're looking at keeping the weight off, that actually uh, precludes an entire universe of options as to how to get down there. Like just a really quick stupid analogy. Um, let's say you are trying to do a – you're in the military and you're a special operator and you've got your crew of guys and you're trying to do a hostage rescue in the middle of like a war-torn city just, just powered by bad guys. Right. Okay. How do you maximize your chances of getting to the hostages which are in the middle of the city? Um, you shoot as many of your bullets as possible in route. Like you right. put down heavy volumes of fire and that will maximize your chance of actually getting there. And then you're like, hey, we got there. Like that's the equivalent of losing weight. Right. Okay. And then someone's like, oh, yeah, by the way, you have to take them out and go back. You're like, well, we're out of bullets. Like, <laughs> like, we're done, man. Yeah. That sucks, right? <laughs> Shit. That's the same thing as, as being out of motivation and out of willpower to be able to sustain that because a harsh ride down using all of your bullets, basically using all of your abilities to discipline yourself and motivate yourself with a really crazy diet basically gets you in this place where you're out of steam. So by the time you lose the weight, yay, you take a picture, you have a picnic with family and friends, it's the new me, and then you're so done, the diet fatigue is so high that it rockets you back up into that stratosphere of fat again. Same, you know, so, so really, the, when, when we tell those operators, hey, we're gonna do a hostage rescue, 
they're not stupid. They're going to say, okay, we need a certain amount of ammo expenditure on the way in as little as possible, right? As, as little as we need to get into where the hostages are. And then we're going to save as much of it to get out because that's when we're successful when, when the hostages are out of the city in our helicopter and we're flying back to, you know, the free world, right? right that right. is a victory just the same way as, you know, that flight to the free world analogy there is, is basically like, okay, it's been six months, it's been a year and I have something sustainable that it it doesn't take me anything it takes effort but it doesn't take anything alien or unsustainable feeling to keep doing this way like for example when i go to the store and i choose frozen yogurt instead of ice cream that is not what i would call a laborious emotionally traumatic decision (laughs) it's not like oh i don't like slowly matrix style grab the frozen yogurt and the ice cream's like you don't love me anymore (laughs) like no, it's easy, right? Because I've done it so many times and I don't even remember what a regular, real ice cream tastes like. And I, if I have it, I'm like, ah, this is kind of too creamy, whatever. Or it's a nice treat to have every now and again, but I'm not like addicted to it or something. Correct. So those are the kind of changes and they're not that tough that are sustainable. But in order to get there, you have to not screw up your first diet by trying to ram all the way through. And sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm ranting, uh, no, but um, I suppose that's one of the reasons you probably brought, brought me on here. Is <laughs> you have, have a guest that just says one word answers and not, nothing else, like point teeth. So, you know, one of the things is uh, making sure that uh, the amount of effort that you put into the diet, uh, as much of that becomes automatic, as, as much of that as possible becomes automatic for later, so that when it comes to sustaining the diet, most of the stuff that it takes to sustain it, it should just, by the time you're done with the diet, be like, uh, you know, that's just kind of stuff I do. And and to that end, it, part of that, you know, having that automation there is about setting it up with not so lofty goals in the short term. And I can't tell you how much uh, I used to teach a class on um, actually the psychology of, of uh, weight loss and the psychology of fitness behavior. And uh, I used to do this example where back when I was a personal trainer and then later a diet designer, diet coach, you would work with people that are pretty overweight and you would say, okay, now we got this diet. It was the goal is to lose two pounds per week for 12 weeks. And then we're going to maintain for like three months and then we're going to see, you know, we're going to reevaluate, maybe lose some more weight. A hugely common answer that I would get talking to people who are 300, 400 pounds is to say, oh, I can lose way more than two pounds a week. And for the, I never did this, but it's highly unprofessional for the life of me. I always wanted to be like, oh, is that right? Really? You're yeah. going to lecture me about how much weight you can lose. Right. Well, gee, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, it's, like, it's clearly not in evidence by your physique. Right. The thing is, they're not lying. They can lose four pounds a week, right. but that sets up diet fatigue to rebound them back. Yeah, I would good. much rather someone lose two pounds a week, get plenty motivated, get great results. At the end of that, they, they've lost 25 pounds. After three months, they're cool, calm, collected. They've got a great series of health behaviors. After three months of maintaining that body weight, we lose another 15 or 20 pounds, and you go in sort of segmental sequences like that until they're at their new weight. And at their new weight, you know, let's say now they weigh 180 pounds is a sustainable lifetime weight. They're not there burnt out of the diet with zero health habits to rely on. They're there not burnt out of the diet almost at all, and they have this arsenal this arsenal of healthy behaviors and habits that just makes them overpowered to, to deal with the problem. Someone's like, you know, again, they, they meet their friend who they, you know, saw them when they were obese. And two years later, they're like, oh my God, you're losing all this weight. You must take a lot of work. And they're like, mm, 
not really. Not really. We're like, what yeah. do you mean not really? Like, yeah, but stall automatic now. It's just it's too easy now. Right. Like, this is just how I live, and and that really is the golden fleece, I think, of weight loss, and that should be the goal. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of people don't want to believe that, as on the, on the consumer side, that does not interest them such a process, uh, and on the on the supply side, a lot of companies will sell you stuff and encourage behaviors that are anything but that. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, the, most uh, most people, especially here in America, we, you know, it's, it's well, the quick fix, you know, the, 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 the funky diets or the tricks and things. And, you know, obviously, I, you, know, you talk about that. I mentioned that you taught, you mentioned this, you mentioned that, but it all comes down to the boring uh, lifestyle changes that, you know, that, that just keeps it simple, you know, moving forward, you know. Sure. And, you know, part of me, like, I actually like to talk to people about this kind of thing when they give me, you know, sort of pushback. I actually love the conversations. You have to cut them slack. A quick fix is the ideal. But you're, you have to remind people you're talking to adults. Mm-hmm. Like, you remind them literally, like, I assume you're a grown up. And they're like, of course I'm a grown up. What's that supposed to mean? Like, do you fall for quick fixes in other areas of your life? And, like, you know, <laughs> you're talking to someone who's a lawyer. And they're like, you know, I just want a diet to just lose 15 pounds a couple months and I'll be good. But, mm-hmm. So if I sold you a legal services package that was like way cheap, promised a ton of stuff and basically promised to take care of your legal burden forever, would you buy it? Like, no, it's nonsense. You have to keep up with modern legislation and evolving industry. That's insane. There's no way that works. Like it takes effort and time, like mm-hmm, mm, effort and time, you say. Yep. Strange how that works the same <laughs> in every single facet of our lives so if you want something done right you got to put in good diligent calm work and it's going to take some time that can take less time if you're more efficient it can be easier if you're more efficient more scientific but there are limits to these things and i'll put this in a kind of um in an interesting way you know if your first question about a diet is okay how quick and easy is this you're asking the wrong question. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> if, if you're, it, it's almost like, can you imagine a doctor showing up for surgery and he looks at his crew once the uh, once the patient's out, like, oh, all right, what's the fastest we can do this and get out of here? Like, right. what? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> don't we want to like fix the guy? Like, oh well, yeah, obviously, but I don't want to be here all day. You know what I mean? Like, right. no, this, literally, twelve-hour surgery. There's no other way. So you know, if you were the patient and you heard your doctor say that, you'd be like, oh my god, like, get me out of here. So it's just, a, it's just one of those things that I think. As fitness professionals, I think it's up to us to some extent to um, communicate that culture to people and sort of – we don't have to teach them this because everyone knows it. We just have to remind them it applies to fitness. So if someone says like, well, I just want to do this fast, to be like, you really think that these like freebies are out there? And they're going to look at you. They're going to look down at the ground. They're going to look at you. They're going to say – no, like, all right, you ready to get to work in a calm, diligent manner so we can actually get results? Like, yes. Yes. And then they're bought in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, those are some great analogies there. Uh, For sure, I'm going to use a couple of those. (laughs) 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 Now, are are you... um... Obviously, people that are um, dropping weight pretty quickly, you know, they're, they're they have more to lose. It's it's a lot more flexible. As you have, do you do much with people who are uh, not quite as in, uh, not as far to go, or at any point, especially if they're they've been pretty consistent with their their nutrition, but they still they've kind they've kind of hit a a plateau, I guess, in terms of like nutrient cycling or going uh, doing refeeds or carb or, or uh, calorie refeeds or anything like that. Which with your average uh, average person, I'm not talking like fitness competitors or for anything sure. Like that. Yeah, so for the average people, when someone's hit a plateau, uh, like with many things, you have to analyze what is the root of that problem. 
like a person who's hit a plateau, question number two is why? Because until you answer the why, you actually have no solution for them whatsoever. Like someone's like, my computer's not working. And you're like, okay, do this. Like, no, you have to be like, okay, is the screen on and doesn't show anything? Mm -hmm. Is it plugged in? Because if it's not plugged in, it's like, okay, plug it in. And then it turns on. You're like, oh, we we figured out why, right? So uh, there's a couple reasons for plateaus. Um, one of them, the sort of most uh, obvious one, but it's rarely hit, is someone's at the sort of genetic lifestyle intersection limit where this is about as lean as you're going to get given what you've been putting in. And you're not doing anything wrong. It's just like, you know, you're pretty well fit and anything else is going to require like generating a bigger wave right. of, of intervention. So someone, we get this at RP quite often because we deal a lot with athletes and with really good CrossFitters. We'll let people sign up for diet coaching or people interested in diet products, and they're like, okay, I'm a female, I have 16% body fat, and I'm fat, I want to get leaner. And the first conversation we say is like, you're 1% fat away from from an average reference frame of amenorrhea. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're, you're if lean. we got you any leaner, we'd have to give you a medical talk first before you <laughs> authorized us to do that. And it exactly. would only have to be in the short term. And a lot of times they don't know that. They're like, really? 16% is lean? Like, for a female, it's incredibly lean. And they're like, what do you look like? And they're like, well, like, I, I have abs and I have some veins on my abs, but I'm not, like, shredded, you know? And they're like, right. okay, well, you know, people don't just walk around shredded right. <laughs> unless they're normal. physique athletes. And then you're <laughs> going to have to dedicate your life. You know, that's another thing people don't, don't realize. Like, I want to look like this girl on Instagram. They're like, okay, what do you do for a living? Like, well, I'm a medical resident. And I'm going to be like a bariatric surgeon. Like, well, okay. Like, do you know what they do? Like you're a fitness icon. They're like, I don't know. Like they just do fitness. That's all they do. That's all they do. <laughs> they right. don't even have a day job. They just post on Instagram and train a couple of clients and sell a couple of online programs. And they spend 20 hours a week at a gym. Their diet is flawless. Meanwhile, you've got patients blood squirting all over your face in the ER and you're getting whatever kind of snack you can in between not falling asleep on your night shift. And right. it's like, oh, okay, well, so now we're going to take your goals and we're going to scale them back to what you think is the appropriate level of intervention. So that's kind of the first one of us. Like, whatever it is you're doing now, even though you're doing it well, it's going to have to just be more in order to get you past the plateau. Another one is people are slipping up in places where they don't realize it um, and the tightening up is required. So they'll uh, say, you know, I'm eating super clean. I'm like, okay, how many times do you eat not clean? And they're like, well, I don't. I eat super clean. I'm like, okay, how many meals a week do you eat that are like, whatever, just BS. And they're like, I don't know, like five or six. Like, okay, so you, you know what? You never say this out loud. You're like, okay, you just implicitly lied to me in your first two statements. <laughs> right. But people do that. They're like, I'm, because, you know, clean eating to a lot of people means I'm a good person. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I believe that you're a good person. That, that doesn't have to do with how many slices of pizza you eat. <laughs> right. Um, can right. you imagine like Nelson, Nelson Mandela's grave? It's like, he was a man <laughs> that liberated half of Africa. And by the way, he ate junk food. So I don't know. He was right. fine, but not that great. <laughs> so, so basically, you have this situation where people um, want uh, sort of much more perfection, want that last bit of body fat off. And you got to kind of remind them like, hey, you know, that really kind of means that you're going to have to tighten up your diet for six weeks, for eight weeks, for 10 weeks and do no cheating, no beer drinking. Uh, and you're going to have to do five workouts a week instead of four to three like you have been because, you know, they're not off the wagon. Like you said, they're doing good stuff, but they need to tighten up. And so, so that's definitely fine, and the solution there is implied. They just listen to what you're saying, and they go. And then uh, another category, just the last one I'll mention for now, is uh, some people are over-dieted, specifically psychologically. Mm-hmm. And what they're doing is they're saying they're still on their diet, but 
their uh, non-exercise activity thermogenesis, the amount of time, the amount of energy they have to move around and walk and talk and all this other stuff has, has fallen tr- dramatically because they've been dieting for way too long. And they haven't lost weight in a long time because their expenditure energy is so low that now their low consumption calories are isocaloric for them. And this is almost, almost always compounded by the fact that they have binge episodes and cheat like crazy. So you'll ask them, like, how strict are you? And they're like, I'm 100% strict. I'm like, what happened last Tuesday? They're like, well, I don't want to talk about last Tuesday. <laughs> right. right. Like, well, right. you ate the mailman's leg. So that's that's bad, right? right. But because uh, he happened to have a Twinkie stain on it, but uh, so you know, it's one of those situations where for those people, the answer is not to tighten up and push faster. The answer is to give them programmed more whole, clean, healthy foods, and slowly raise the amount of food they're eating as the metabolisms start to ramp up a little bit as their activity starts to ramp up. They actually don't gain much or any weight, and you feed them hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of more calories. You reintegrate cheat meals back in so they have you know meals every now and again where they can eat whatever. And all of a sudden, months later, and it really takes months, they're psychologically very well again. Physiologically, they're recovered, but they're really just not very much fatter or, or, um, or heavier. And then you say, okay, like remember you wanted to be leaner? And they're like, uh-huh. Like, do you want to do that now because now you're recovered? And they'll be like, yeah, let's yeah. go for it. And then the diet, you just tighten back the cheat meals. You reduce the calories a bit. You keep them working out and boom, voila, mission accomplished. So I would say those are some major factors there. Yeah, that's very well said, Mike. That's awesome. Cause I've had a number of patients like that too. And especially, and especially with females with, you know, they're just, I'm just not losing the weight. I was now I'm flat. And then when I really start pressing them on questions, you know, the, the classic example is, well, I'm going to keep cutting down my calories and only eat once a day and I'm going to work out even more. Okay. Like, well, now, no, <laughs> no, you're not <laughs> like you need to recover. Your body has to heal your cortisol is through the roof. You're, you're stressed. You know, you're not sleeping, you know, <laughs> eat, please eat and, and, and don't, sure. don't work out this week. You know, take a back off with her, you know, and that's blasphemy. No, no, no. Trust me. <laughs> you got to recover. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you people know? think that like that kind of advice is just the first step in the road back to their old fat self. Right. And in reality, you, you have to sort of communicate like we're not quitting on you. We're engineering a different pathway. Mm-hmm. Like if you are flying a plane around and having fun flying the plane, in nobody's right mind when the traffic controller's like, hey, you should land and refuel. Nobody's like, what? He's trying to stop my fun. Like, right. no, you need more no, fuel. No, no. <laughs> it's really that simple. He's on your side. Right. Is it going to take some a couple minutes to refuel on the ground so you can fly the plane again? Yeah, but that's yeah. just a part of the process. Right. So people think that like, you know, they just want to keep flying their planes, even though they're flying on empty and they can't do these cartwheel maneuvers anymore. And they thinking, oh, man, I just have to pull harder on the joystick. Like, mm, nope, it's time to land. And the thing is, landing a plane and crashing the plane are not the same thing. <laughs> no. So they think when you say it's time to land the plane and refuel, which means integrate a normal diet back in, raise the amount of healthy foods you're eating, which is like, honestly, it's a great selling point for us at RP that we phrase it this way. I think it's a good way to phrase it. Like, I am not asking you to stop eating your healthy foods and start eating pizza. What I'm asking you to do, we'll talk about pizza later, for now is just double the amount of healthy food that you're eating. Can you do that for me? Because then they get to still feel like they're fueling the body. You know what I mean? They're not like giving up on themselves. Right. And all of a sudden, after a couple of weeks of eating a lot more healthy food, they haven't really gained much weight. Their metabolisms and energy levels are back super high. And they're like, wow, I feel super great. And then you could be like, oh, gee, you know, a couple slices of pizza here and they're not going to kill you. And they're like, totally. And then all of a sudden, it's all good. So... You know, people think that crashing the plane and landing the plane is the same thing. It's up to you to talk about it. And you know, I will say it's a tough conversation sometimes, sometimes very tough. 
Oh, yeah, people don't want to hear. Oh, you mean you want me to eat more and do less? Yes, but, yeah, like you said, not just anything and everything. You're going to eat good stuff, just more of it, you know. Totally, (laughs) because a lot of people have this sort of linear thinking as far as shape is concerned. Like if you have a regular people who have been dieting for a couple of weeks draw out what they think fitness looks like, they're like, okay, I used to eat 3,000 calories of BS and I was out of shape. Now I'm eating 1,000 calories of really good food and I'm on my way to get in shape. And you're like, okay. And so once you're in shape, once you've lost all the weight you want, what is the plan? They're like, mm-hmm. it's to continue eating 1,000 calories for forever. Like, okay, you're out of your mind. <laughs> no, no, That's just no, no, not no. how things work. Right. Things work in a phasic manner. It's like, you know, when you finish a big project for work, you don't just stay at work after that and continue to work on a big project forever until you die in your work chair. You take a weekend. <laughs> you know, like that. That's how it works. Everything is phasic. Geez, even in med school and residency. Well, in residency, I don't know. It's a form of torture. But in, in med school, they give you vacations every now and again so yep. you can go on plug. When you're grinding a grind, but when you're relaxing, you're relaxing, and the same thing has to apply to diet. Now, when you're in med school and you're taking a vacation from the books and you're going out and partying with friends, that doesn't mean you take like you know you like what are those things called? Like when you like uh, suck down on uh, aerosol cans and destroy right. brain cells as a joke. <laughs> it doesn't mean you're act like getting concussions and doing like whoopee cans so that you can get dumber. <laughs> like that's a, we're just relaxing. We're just stepping away from the books. Just the same way when you're like taking a, what's called a diet break or sort of revamping your diet to eat more. It's not like we're switching from broccoli and chicken to pizza and ice cream and just abandoning all structure. We're just giving you more of the good stuff and a bit of junk just to feed the soul. That slow transition is something that's lost on all people. They feel like they're giving up, and that's definitely a messaging thing. Right, absolutely, absolutely. Do you use uh, much much fasting or time-restricted eating with uh, many of your clients, the ones you, or your people that are buying your products and things like that? You know, um, so... A lot of our products are performance oriented, mm-hmm. but we do use distinct meal numbers. Mm-hmm. So we try to get away from snacking. The thing is, uh, the research on snacking is interesting. Snacking and not snacking work relatively equally well. But the problem is that a lot of people for whom snacking works well, they're not the people buying fat loss products because they don't have a problem with it. Like there's always that lady at work that's super lean her whole life and super active, and she like is grazing on food all the time. Right. But she doesn't need your help. <laughs> right. So the people that end up getting in trouble with snacking are the people that need your help and they're the ones for whom snacking probably isn't a good thing. Snacking can be reintegrated once you are down to your weight, but when we start diets, we usually say okay, here's your five meals or here's your three meals. Eat your meals and then you'll be good. And what that makes the situation that makes is the meals become bigger because you're not snacking. They become more full, become more filling. They give you satisfaction because they make you feel full. Um, and because of that, there's this very distinct sensation that you're not starving to death. If you if people snack a lot, they're never quite well fed at all during the day. And that can lead to a sensation like, oh, we just never get enough food and they binge and they cheat and stuff like that. And another thing we do is we don't actively promote time-restricted feeding uh, most of the time. Um, What we say is, look, if you're less hungry during different times of the day or not hungry at all, either delay eating to some extent or eat a much lighter meal. For example, for muscle maintenance purposes, it's probably good to consume protein relatively frequently three – four to and and more times per day so that's kind of set in stone to some extent and then we say okay protein got it but 
what if in the mornings I'm just not that hungry? Do I have to wake up and eat fruits and oatmeal and all this crap? No. Wake up, have a protein shake, and by the time you get hungry on 1 p.m., you you have so many calories, so many carbs and fats left that you can have like a decent-sized lunch. And then potentially, if you're the kind of person that really likes to eat a lot for dinner, you can save like your meals for a much bigger dinner. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're doing, in a sense, sort of time-restricted feeding by eating more and more throughout the day, less when you're hungry and less when you're not. But not everyone works like that. So some people wake up super hungry. My wife is like this. She'll wake up breakfast is her biggest meal of the day. Right. Um, for me, it's completely opposite. For me, like... I actually have trouble eating breakfast. Like, really? If I absolutely, if if you wake me up and take me to a diner, I could be dieted down. I'd be like, ah, uh, uh, I don't know. But if you give yeah. me an hour, I'm like feeling way better <laughs> about stuff. If I work out, I can annihilate two breakfasts in a row. Right. So, but for her, it's like breakfast is super. Uh, you know, just boom, gets her started. But in the evening, she's just not a really big evening eater. She'll have a piece of fish and some veggies and I'll be like, wow, that's it. And I'm like, wow. So I think a lot of it is just aligning it to your own personal hunger patterns and figuring out from there. I definitely would say if you're on a fat loss diet and you're stuffing yourself at any point, um, you know, you could rearrange some things. Right. No, I think that's a, it's very well said and I agree completely. I'm big on, um, listening to your body. And I think unfortunately in today's society where there's just a, a overabundance of, of food and, and ability to not move, it's very easy just to eat just because, or because it's time to eat or just, I just feel like it or emotional. Like, or it's entertaining. Re- yeah. Or you really, really hungry. Like listen to your, really pay attention to your stomach and your brain, you know, cause I've, I'm like you and some mornings I'm really hungry. And like yesterday I just got up and did a really quick, you know, light workout. And, and I was like, Hey, I'm not even hungry. So I just brushed my teeth, went to work and I, but, but about an hour or two later I was hungry and I ate, you know, so, uh, just listen, you listen to your body. I, and I think a lot of people have kind of gotten out of touch with that. And it's, it's hard to do. It takes time. I think. Yeah, I agree. I think that one of the most obesogenic factors in a modern society is the fact that, um, advanced capitalism has, on its, on its incredibly powerful shoulders <laughs> yeah. with its outstretched arm has brought us all the tastiest foods ever from the world yes. and done and done one better because it's allowed people's creative potentials to make foods that never existed as a combination of various cultures. <laughs> right. And uh, they have made those foods unbelievably cheap and accessible from everywhere. Absolutely. So it's kind of like if you want to enjoy yourself through food, can you imagine if you were living in... Um, you're a relatively wealthy person in the 1920s in Nebraska, and you wanted to entertain yourself with food. What would you do? <laughs> I don't know. You could go out for ice cream. There might have been one restaurant in your entire town, maybe zero. Right. And then if you wanted some real good food, uh, you know, there's only so much kind of food that your family can make, and that always takes a long time. And then also, like, look, what if you wanted Indian food or Chinese food? Well, Jesus, that was just not – literally just didn't exist. But now you have someone – who makes minimum wage literally able to access the world's food right. almost, let's be honest, almost for free. Like food in the United States and across the Western world is so cheap. It's, it it's is. like a joke, right? It like, is. There's actually zero people in the United States that's uh, short of like drug problem or something can't afford food. Like the, our poorest people are our fattest people. So True. it's a solved problem, but it's so well solved that if you want to entertain yourself with food, whoa, you got a whole lot of entertaining to do. And the thing is, if you entertain yourself with video games with talking to friends or with doing hikes in the wilderness, that doesn't come with added pounds. Right. If you entertain yourself with food, it comes with a destructive health effect. So, Absolutely. you know, 
just about you know in the modern world i think just like at all times you have to be a responsible consumer you have to understand that capitalism at the same time raises this incredible plate of delicious foods for you but if you just point to its other hand it'll raise every fitness product ever developed for you as well it's on you to choose and if you don't you know if you just buy whatever companies want to sell you you'll buy anything and everything at all so you have to take a little bit of initiative and say what do i want i want to lose weight or i want to lose fat and then you go about purchasing or not purchasing a variety of products and services to that end and that might have to be eating less you know fatty and tasty food sometimes it's tough just tough to say no but also we're all grown-ups you know yeah we're all grown-ups yeah it gets in the whole world of hedonics and uh you know, sure. it's just so easy to just to, to not do much and, and to get food as opposed to, like you said, back in the 20s or even before that, you know, people were always on the go and food was scarce. But now it's so easy. <laughs> just to... Sure, which is a, it's a super great problem to have, but it's nonetheless a problem. No, exactly. Exactly. Well, hey, Mike, I, uh, I'm going to I don't know how you are in time. I'd love to keep talking with you. I, I hate to keep you more than an hour, but um, maybe I'm we... topped out, unfortunately. OK, <laughs> perfect. I would love to keep talking as well, but I have something uh, happening right after this. Perfect. No, that's why I thought I thought I'd better check and check on your time. Thank uh, you so much. If we can get you back on sometime, that'd be fantastic. I'll shoot you a quick email, uh, get your contact info if you're okay with that. Um, real quick, uh, you want to tell everybody your, your, uh, where we can find more about you and your website, et cetera? Totally. So on Instagram, at RPStrength. And uh, uh, I'm on Instagram myself. That's the company. I'm on Instagram as R-P-D-R-M-I-K-E, R-P Dr. Mike. Mine's mostly memes and videos of me working out that are boring. Um <laughs> And Facebook, I'm Mike Isratel, and then Renaissance Periodization dot um, is going to be something that is uh, is a website that we sell all our stuff on, and it's a really cool resource. I will say, I hope I don't get in trouble for this. When when are you posting this podcast? Uh, this will probably go out in the next week or two. Oh, sweet. Okay, so uh, you know, I, I'm probably rushing to here. So, uh, sorry, listeners. Apologies if this doesn't work yet, but. Uh, we're launching a collaborative effort with uh, a physician who's joining our team, Dr. Spencer Nadolsky. Um, we're launching a, uh, another company called RP Health that is actually designed for individuals with some pre-existing conditions and people who are not in the best health to access experienced dietitians and a variety of templates for their health needs. So rphealth.com, I think, is uh, where to find that. So check it out. If it, awesome. Hey, you know, if we, if we launch on time, it'll, you'll have something to click on. And if not, <laughs> you can send me the you know, DNS request failure and just spam me and tell me I'm an idiot. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Well, Mike, you've been very generous with your time and knowledge. I really appreciate it and enjoyed it personally. I'd love to, love to have you back on sometime. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I got to get going. Um, yep. Let me know if you want me back on and I'll absolutely make it. Sounds good. Thanks, Mike. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Bye. Uh, bye.